because they called it shell shock. In World War II, General Patton slapped a soldier who was distraught from combat. How were psychiatric casualties treated in the Civil War? We'll find out when we return on Civil War Talk Radio. Writers Wanted at the 6th Annual La Jolla Writers Conference, October 20 through 22, 2006, where New York Times best-selling authors, editors, agents, publicists, screenwriters, and poets will help you find your voice and perfect your craft. Get feedback on your work from New York Times bestsellers James Gripondo, Linda Leo Miller, Steve Berry, Margaret Weiss, Catherine Ryan Hyde, and a host of other outstanding authors. Participate in read and critique classes with renowned literary agents and editors and know that you can later submit to them on a first-name basis. Hone your screenwriting skills with Alan Russell and Warren Lewis, the writer of Black Rain, The 13th Warrior, and other movies, and find out what it takes to get your small press book on the shelves of Barnes & Noble with Marcella Smith of their New York office and Jan Nathanson of PMA. Whether you write fiction or nonfiction, whether you're looking to jumpstart your writing career or simply hone your craft, join the unique writing community of the La Jolla Writers Conference October 20th through 22nd. For more information, check us out at LaJollaWritersConference.com or call 858-467-1978. The La Jolla Writers Conference, turning writers into authors and authors into bestsellers. You're listening to World Talk Radio, where the world comes to talk. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Eric Dean, author of Shook Over Hell, Post-Traumatic Stress, Vietnam, and Civil War. And we're discussing the grim but fascinating topic of psychiatric effects of battle in the Civil War. The market left on veterans, perhaps not wounded in body, but in in mind or spirit. Eric, a question that came to me reading your your article in North and South, where you talk about these issues, uh, was how casualties were treated, and the the ideas, the the theoretical, both the theory the theory of, of psychiatric casualties and the actual practice. Um, this certainly changed throughout the 20th century. Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly in World War One, shell shock became recognized that not every man unwilling to go back to the trenches was a coward. There there was a real illness there mm-hmm. uh, or injury there. Uh, did, did people see it that way in the Civil War? Or if you if you were just trembling all over and afraid to go up the hill at, at uh, Fredericksburg or uh, up Joint Pickett at Gettysburg, you're, you're just a coward. How did they view that? I think that for the most part, uh, breakdown without any actual blood from a physical wound would be regarded as a, a, a sort of a moral shortcoming, as some form of cowardice. I think, uh, in part, it's, it's understandable because uh, the physical conditions were so wretched at the time, and you had so many people suffering from physical illness and so many people shot up on the battlefield. Uh, it would be kind of infuriating, I guess, to see some guy show up who just says he can't stand it anymore and otherwise is physically intact. So I think a lot of these people were viewed as um, uh, shirking duty 
uh, and treated that way. Even in the 20th century, you mentioned the patent slapping incident. Um, I think modern military psychiatry emerges in World War One, and it was firmly institutionalized in our military in World War Two. Uh, and yet, you know, you have somebody like General Patton seeing a guy who otherwise looks fine and slaps him, says, you know, get a hold of yourself, go back. So even now, I think uh, there's a lot of resistance in the military to uh, the idea of psychological breakdown. Even in Iraq, I think um, a lot of people have pointed out that um, Iraq is sort of becoming another Vietnam in terms of the terrible stress the soldiers are under. And yet there's a, a kind of a reluctance to report a problem, I think, because soldiers don't want to uh, look weak. They don't want to look like they're not supporting their comrades, so they frequently won't report a problem. So if you take it back to the 19th century, you have not only those dynamics, the idea of trying to protect your group and support your group and not look weak, but you also have Victorian ideas of uh, manliness, uh, et cetera, et cetera. One fascinating thing is you have some interesting doctors that emerged at that time, like um, Silas Weir Mitchell, uh, Morehouse Keene, some of his colleagues, and they were treating um, gunshot wounds and looking for the, um, the neurological sequelae of gunshot wounds. And they they came across a lot of cases where people had no physical wound and they were just out of control. Uh, they were in dread of being sent back to the front. They couldn't stand it, couldn't settle down, completely rattled. And yet they were they were viewed as malingers. They were frequently, if they said an arm didn't work or a leg didn't work, they had some sort of hysterical problem of that nature, they were frequently given anesthesia to see if the limb actually worked. So there was just this 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 deeply entrenched view of uh, of psychological illness without an accompanying physical wound as being some kind of malingering. And once you come to World War One, I, I think World War One was just a, such a shock to, to culture and to the medical community because with the kind of intensive bombardment you had on the Western Front in World War One, you had a whole range of uh, of uh, psychological problems and, and, and like hysterical blindness, people who were just under such stress they they lost their eyesight or that they couldn't move or they were shaking. And I think World War One finally, you know, the medical community accepted this and uh, at first there was a lot of uh of confusion and shock. But there were so many cases and it was such an intensive experience that it was analyzed and, and entered into the medical um lexicon, you know, these various terms and ideas. But um, not so back in the 19th century. So my feeling, and again, it's hard to quantify this, but my feeling is that there were a hell of a lot of men that that um, were suffering psychologically and, and didn't get any sympathy. And one one idea I throw out in my book is uh, there was a lot of desertion during the Civil War. Uh, thousands and thousands of men deserted, and one wonders, you know, what what percentage of that group were in fact men that just couldn't handle it any any more psychologically. And one thing that's frustrating about the deserters are, <clears throat> at least the Union deserters, <clears throat> excuse me, because they deserted, <clears throat> they didn't qualify for a pension, so they they don't show up in the pension records, and you don't get any thorough medical workup on these guys to to try to see what the issue was. They just pretty much disappear, you know, fall off the map. They they, they do tend to do that. Uh, on the show a few weeks ago, we were talking with Jonathan Saris, who. Uh, has written a fine book on the war in the, the North Georgia mountains, and he describes a Confederate, uh, well, a soldier who deserted, I can't even remember from which side, I guess from the Confederates, and then joined the Union, and he shows up at a Confederate reunion, huh. and 
he, he says there were 15,000 of us in southern Tennessee during the war, and now I'm the only one who deserted, apparently. Mm. Uh, the other 14,000-plus uh, deserters made themselves scarce after the war. Uh, yeah. But but that really is a problem. We don't have the records on those people. Yeah. Of course, during the war, they were afraid of uh, being rounded up and executed. I mean, there are quite a few. They have a reason not, not to be out there. Of course, the nature of war is considerably different, and at least until 1864, the Civil War consists of uh, you know, long hours of tedium punctuated by moments of intense fear. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have a battle every six months, maybe, and not really until you get to uh, the, the trenches around Petersburg or occasionally a siege situation like, like Vicksburg, do you have soldiers living in daily fear that, that every moment could be their last. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, which, as you point out, characterizes uh, wars, 20th, 21st century wars like Vietnam or Iraq, uh, where a soldier's life is in constant peril. Well, that's a tricky thing. You get into the nature of trauma. I think that's what you're referring to. And uh, I, there, there's some things to look at. Yeah, one is, of course, the Vietnam veterans initially set themselves up as a unique group. That was sort of their declaration. We're different from everybody else. Nobody and history had a problem that's anything like ours. That's been modified quite a bit. In fact, I think without any official obituary, I think that idea has pretty much died at this point as people become more aware of of the problems of other veterans. But you do have that issue of the constant stress. And one thing I would point to in the Civil War, though, that out in the West, say in Missouri, Mm -hmm. on the Mississippi River, you get a lot of guerrilla activity. And... I came across quite a few uh, sources which said, uh, you know, if you were exposed yourself, it was quite likely some rebel or Confederate sniper would just kill you and not think about it. And then you also get retribution. I mean, if, uh, say, a Union soldier was killed in a certain area, the Union Army would frequently go out and just burn down every house within, uh, say, a 10-mile radius. And that calls to mind sort of the Vietnam phenomenon. Uh, Iraq, same thing, where with these IEDs, you know, some kind of violence is done to the troops and they're just furious and just lash out and retaliate. And then the whole idea uh, that psychology looks at is when soldiers retaliate against helpless, innocent civilians, they frequently carry a lot of psychological baggage because they feel bad about it. And, of course, we're seeing in Iraq now a number of cases have been brought against American soldiers for killing Iraqi civilians. And the idea being that they were just so furious you know, when an IED killed one of their comrades. And you do see the same thing, not necessarily the killing, but you do see the same thing in the Civil War, particularly in the West. And, well, as you mentioned, once you get to 1864 around Petersburg, then it's very much uh, like World War One. the idea of you just raise your head at the wrong time and you can get it blown off. And that, of course, is a very stressful situation. One other thing to think about is, a lot, a lot of um, historians of this subject look at uh, industrial warfare as, as sort of a threshold. And when you get into high explosives, particularly in the 20th century and World War I, um, that seems to create a lot more problems. I think that most soldiers, it's a funny phenomenon, I think uh, frequently soldiers who are on the attack on an offensive have a lower incidence of psychological breakdown because they have a sense of purpose, they're moving, they don't feel helpless. Usually the worst situation is soldiers who are pinned down on the defensive, particularly subjected to some sort of artillery bombardment. Uh, they have a horrible sense of uh, helplessness. And you do see some of that in the Civil War. You know, you have artillery barrages, say, at Gettysburg before the charges. 
But nothing like World War One, where this can go on just for weeks of high explosives, just unbelievable um, concentration of stress. So I think that my, the, the conclusion I reached in my book is it's very hard to uh, objectively rate different kinds of trauma. You know, yeah, you do have the Vietnam or the Iraq scenario or, say, the Western Front in the Civil War where people are subject to snipers, and you also have the bombardment, sort of the industrial warfare. But sort of the... Um, the conclusion I came to is uh, all war is hell. All war, any any situation involving violence where people kill or see people killed, will produce psychological breakdown. So that that uh, being involved in one of those intense moments, uh, charging at Malvern Hill or uh, Fredericksburg, uh, and seeing people you know killed by by the dozen uh, in proximity is. It can can have it produces its own kind of trauma, psychological trauma, different from the kind of long term low level stress. Yeah, and one thing I will say, I had a good quote from my book here. Let me see if I can find this. This one guy that was pretty striking. Let me just say, for starters, that I think people are have individual responses. You'll have some guys uh, that go through. Um, here's a quote from one soldier. This is Franklin Bailey from the 12th Michigan Infantry, and he was writing to his parents about the Battle of Shiloh. He said, It was the first battle I have seen, and I hope that it will be the last one. Oh, what a sight. It almost makes me to shudder to think of it, although at the time I did not think any more of seeing a man shot down by my side than you would have seen a dumb beast killed. And I think that, that really captures it. I mean, it, frequently in, in the midst of battle, uh, people are so consumed with the moment and survival and moving that things don't register. It's afterwards when you're in, in the quiet uh, where these memories start to register on your psyche that, that guys will frequently be horrified by what they've been through. So I think you, you definitely see that in the Civil War, no question about it, the sort of delayed stress when you have a time to stop and think about what happened. Uh, you're, you're horrified and, and start to shudder. Mm-hmm. You talk a little bit about the treatment of, of casualties, the, the PIE uh, system. What, what is that? Um, PIE stands for proximity, immediacy, and expectancy. And the idea in World War I, uh, when military psychiatry was first established, institutionalized with the Army, um, casualties were treated. And the idea was if you treated them close to the front, immediately and with the with the hope and ex- expectancy that they would return to their unit that they would in fact recover it's, it's somewhat controversial there's this idea in military psychiatry that if you coddle um, a patient uh, some guy who comes back and, and, and is upset with what happened if you coddle him and send him to the back to the rear to be treated at say a hospital you know 50 100 miles back from the front that he'll never return and the idea is if you treat them quickly and um, try to get them back to their unit, that things will work out. That's somewhat controversial. I, you know, my, my feeling is that military psychiatry, maybe reasonably so, has to preserve manpower, and it, it's really sort of this hopeful attitude that if you treat people quickly and tell them they should really get back to the front, um, that they will. And to a certain extent, I think military psychiatrists have expressed guilt over that. Uh, they feel frequently that they're not really treating the patient, that they're more attentive to the manpower needs of the military. But um, you have to say whatever the 
shortcomings of military psychiatry from a civilian point of view, it's a very humane alternative compared to the 19th century or the beginning of World War One, where deserters were just lined up and shot. Um, particularly the, the British military, um, I think there were a couple dozen men who were shot on the Western Front for dereliction of duty, and it was later pretty much determined conclusively that they were definitely shell shock cases. And there was a real sense of horror in the British population that people could be treated that way. So I think it's almost inconceivable today, you know, in the 21st century in our army, that people would ever be treated that way. But there is a bias in military psychiatry of trying to preserve manpower, and that's sort of, those are the principles in PIE. Well, I hear by the music we've come to the end of our time. I predicted facetiously this would be the best show ever because I had done such a poor job preparing. And you, you've made me a prophet. This really was a very interesting hour. I certainly learned a lot about this uh, important and, and under-studied uh, topic. Uh, Eric, thanks very much for being on the show. Thank you. I enjoyed talking to you, and good luck with your future shows. Thank you. And listeners, thank you for joining us on Civil War Talk Radio. Mm-hmm.